This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good morning. My name is Richard Kai, and I'm the president and CEO of the Institute of the Americas located on the UC San Diego campus in La Jolla, California. On behalf of the Institute, I'm pleased to welcome you to our two-day virtual forum entitled Challenges and Opportunities in Central America's Northern Triangle Region. To kick off our forum, we have the privilege of having Congressman woman Norma J. Torres, who joins us today um, from her office in the Inland Empire, California. She will be our keynote speaker. Before we begin, I want to thank our sponsors for our forum, San Diego Civic Leader and Philanthropist Malin Burnham and the Burnham Foundation. I also want to thank the University of California Television for partnering with the Institute on this forum. At this time, I would like to introduce Nelson Cunningham, a board member of the Institute of the Americas, who is also president and co-founder of the Washington-based global strategy firm McClarty & Associates. Nelson will introduce Congresswoman Torres. Nelson, take it away. Thank you, Richard. And what a pleasure to be with you uh, and with your audience, with the Institute of the Americas, and of course, with Congresswoman uh, Norma Torres. Um, I've been a member of the board of the Institute for 15 years. Uh, we are very glad, Richard, to have uh, welcomed you last year uh, as, our, as our new president and are delighted with the energy that you have brought to the programming uh, for the Institute and keeping it a vital link in, in the San Diego areas and Southern California's uh, view toward the greater region below our borders. Uh, this session on Central America, it comes at absolutely a critical moment. Uh, State Secretary of State Tony Blinken was, has been in Costa Rica yesterday and today. Vice President Harris is heading next week to Central America for high-level meetings uh, to discuss how to uh, economically develop Central America and how to keep Central Americans prospering at home so that they do not have to make their way north to our border. Um, and so this conference comes at exactly the right moment in terms of helping to, uh, your audience understand the events that are happening today and next week. And we are truly fortunate to have with us Congresswoman Nor Norma Torres. Uh, I had the privilege of meeting her when she was a freshman member of Congress, but that uh, three or four years ago, but that was hardly her first um, foray into public service. In fact, she has risen all the way from a 911 operator uh, through being a city council member in Pomona, being mayor, being in the assembly, being a state senator, and now serving as a member of Congress. She serves on the Powerful Appropriations Committee and on the Powerful Rules Committee, helping to both fund our government and set the rules by which the House takes up legislation. Those of us in Washington know that those are real, a uh, real testament to her clout, even as a very junior member of Congress, uh, the clout that she brings for her region and for the issues that she focuses on. But she's also been a member in the past of foreign affairs, homeland security, and natural resources, all of which touch on this question of Central America and the border. And I've left out perhaps the most important part of why she is such a key person to speak on this, is she is herself an immigrant from Central America. She was born in Guatemala. She came to the United States at the age of five 
She's a naturalized citizen. Her constituents have many people who, like her, came from beyond the United States, have become Americans, have become integral to the fabric of our country. And I think it's fair to say that there are few in the Congress uh, who can understand the tale of immigrants uh, coming to this country and of and of what why they flee their countries, why they come here, and how we can balance those. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce uh, the only Central American-born member of Congress, um, Southern California's own Norma Torres, Congresswoman. Well, uh, good morning, everyone, and thank you so much for that um, introduction, Nelson. It's really great to see you. This is indeed a very timely conversation on the challenges and opportunities in Central America, specifically in the Northern Triangle. I want to thank uh, the Institute of Americas for bringing us together and your wonderful president, Richard Key, for inviting me to speak with you today. Our conversation is also being rebroadcast thanks to the University of California school system. So let me also thank UCTV as well uh, before we get going. And I want to thank all of you tuning in to watch this forum, whether you're joining us from here in the US or from somewhere in the region, your presence is vital. I'd like to start by exploring why this conversation is so urgent. Why should every American care about the opportunities or lack thereof for Central Americans living in the Northern Triangle? The fact is our immigration policies extend far beyond our borders. So if we want to address the challenges we face, we need to do the same where they begin. We need to address the root cause. This is something that I know firsthand um, about. As someone, um, as some of you may know, I was born in Guatemala in the midst of a civil war. My parents sent me to live here in the U.S. with my uncle. And when I was five years old, my um, one of my father's um, brother was already serving in the U.S. Navy and the other one was an auto worker and I went to live with my auto worker uncle. It was the only way that my parents could ensure that I had the stability and opportunity to reach my full potential. I like to tell people if this young girl could be plucked from the violence and poverty in Guatemala and go on to serve in the United States Congress, then an equally bright future is possible for every other person striving to reach their full potential. Every child deserves um, a life of dignity in their own home country. And every parent deserves to raise their children free from the threats of violence and poverty. And every central government has the obligation to strive for these things for their citizens. Sadly, that does not happen in the Northern Triangle, countries of El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. Instead, corrupt elites enrich themselves and pursue their own interests at the expense of their own people. They leave their people to suffer in poverty and violence, which drives them to migrate north 
to our southern border. So it's time to stop treating the symptoms while ignoring the real problems. We have a moral obligation to help those in need. And we also have a strategic interest in helping stabilize the region. So first and foremost, we need career ambassadors in the region. We need strong leadership to promote our shared goals and challenge these leaders uh, to do the right thing, even when it's difficult. We need to stay focused on root causes by embracing and empower anti-corruption institutions and local civil society organizations. We saw democratic backsliding over the past four years as the Trump administration turned a blind eye to corrupt and allow CSIG and Moxie to falter. It is not surprising that once these mechanisms threaten those in power and elite interest, those same people sought to obstruct the investigations and cancel their mandates. I know many of you here today share my concerns and are working to fight corruption at, on the national and at the local level. Civil society and independent organizations shed light on corruption, help prevent it, and hold corrupt actors accountable. We need to make sure that the people who are fighting to uphold the rule of law, despite great personal risk from corrupt actors, have our support. The governments and elites attack those who push back against their corrupt practices and power grabs. They try to intimidate and silence everyone, including me. In my meeting with VP Harris and recent engagements with the administration, I stress the critical importance of addressing systemic corruption and upholding the rule of law to see meaningful change in the region. I have also been heartened to see Vice President, um, the Vice President's commitment to hearing directly from the brave advocates and leaders from the region, including civil society and independent judges who have been attacked for remaining loyal to the rule of law and not corrupt interests. And we need to strive for accountability by shining a light on corrupt actors and making sure they face consequences for their actions. Recently, I published a list of corrupt actors from the region that the State Department developed at my request. The truth is we already know that Central American governments are plagued by corruption. We have seen the governments uh, politicize and co-opt public institutions to protect their personal interests and embezzle public funds for their personal gains. In fact, many of the same on my list were those that were already investigated by CSIG and Moxie, showing how effective these mechanisms were. Unfortunately, they also show how the current judicial bodies are unwilling to take that action that is required against corruption. The list also exposed that corruption in the region is present in all sectors 
and not limited to any political party or ideology. It showed us how that corruption um, impacts us at the, and them at the highest levels of government and in the inner circles of these leaders. This list is a strong step, but it is only the first step towards holding those officials accountable. We, know, uh, we now need to see strong actions. The administration needs to use all of the tools at our disposal, including economic sanctions and visa restrictions to show that there are consequences to corruption. People must think twice before continuing this harmful behavior. We need to ensure leaders and elites do not enrich themselves while depriving other uh, of those opportunities, opportunities to learn, to work, and to live without fear for their safety or security to their own people. That is why I worked in Congress to withhold aid from central governments and uh, who will only exploit it. Why should we train the military in El Salvador when President Bukele has already used those troops to storm its own capital? Why should we give Guatemala military equipment when the last time we did that, they used our armed jeeps to intimidate US dim diplomats? And why should we be doing anything to help the government of Honduras while a sitting president allegedly protected drug traffickers to use drug money to fund his campaign? You know the answer as well as I do. We shouldn't. I was pleased to see USAID suspend aid to the government of El Salvador recently and redirect it to civil society. And I addressed the topic directly with Ambassador Power last week when she testified before me in the House Appropriations Subcommittee for State and Foreign Operations. I encourage her to hold the governments of Guatemala, Honduras to equally high standards. And I, and I pressed her on how USAID supports and protects civil society. We can only provide assistance to those governments institutions that have shown that they are committed to the rule of law and loyal to the democratic process. I am accountable to my constituents to make sure that their hard earned taxpayers dollars are spent responsibly. So if we send foreign aid to a country, we must make sure that it actually reaches the people who are suffering. Instead of working with the governments, we need to prioritize our support to local organizations. When I think back at my own childhood in Guatemala, these are the changes that would have allowed me to stay, to have a future in the country where I was born, and maybe an opportunity to be a member of Congress in that region. These are the changes that would lead to a stable life there where people could see a future for themselves. This is how we ensure people in the Northern Triangle 
have the opportunities they need to thrive and are protected from the corruption that has plagued the region for so long. These are common sense goals, but they will require systemic changes, the kind of changes we should be striving for today to end the factors that drive people north. So many of you joining this forum today have a crucial role to play in this work. I want to thank the Institute of the Americas and UCTV once again, and thank everyone who can hear me, who is committed to seeing the Northern Triangle through brighter days. I am proud to have you as a partner, and I thank you again for the opportunity to join you today. Thank you so much for those comments uh, and those remarks. My own story is somewhat the mirror image of yours. Uh, my father was an American businessman in Mexico, Central America, and South America. Uh, my sister was born in El Salvador. We lived in Mexico and Central America when I was a boy. Um, I saw then what it was like as an American to be living there. I saw the realities on the ground in Central America. So like you, I've spent my life at the intersection of Latin America and the United States. I, as an American born and raised in Latin America, you as a Latina who came to the United States and saw it. Uh, I, I think what I found particularly um, intriguing about your comments was that, that as someone born in the region, you can speak about the corruption, you can speak about the economic inequities, you can speak about the political issues with an authority that no one else in the Congress can bring because you're not speaking as an outsider, you're speaking as an insider. Uh, you're speaking as someone who saw this system, whose family saw this system from the inside and that brings a, a, such an authority and an integrity to the comments that you bring. So I'd like to begin with a couple of questions that explore um, your background, perhaps maybe make it a little personal, your background as a Guatemalan girl growing up in Southern California. Uh, uh, did you feel valued? Did you feel a part of America? Tell us a little bit about your journey to become an American from being, uh, from being an immigrant and in, in many ways a refugee. Yeah, I, I would say um, becoming an American for me um, was every morning uh, seeing my neighbor, who was a senior, um, who was a veteran, and I am so sorry, I, I cannot remember which branch of the military, but seeing him raise the American flag every single morning and bring it down every single evening, um, seeing the pride and love and admiration that he had for the American flag really instilled in me, um, I think the boundaries, the, the, the respect that we must show our country um, for the freedoms that we enjoy here. Um, the freedoms that I enjoyed as a child, being able to go to school in a community that embraced me. And although ESL was not um, something that was offered in my school at that time, I learned English um, very, very quickly because 
you know, I was a child and I was so eager and hungry to learn not just the language, um, but the culture. And um, for a young girl uh, to, you know, move to a country in a neighborhood um, where I really did not know anybody, embracing, you know, those moments um, of, you know, the flag being um, uh, raised um, every single day, I think are my most proud moments of my uh, childhood. Thank you. I, I know we've got some questions coming in from the audience. And so I'd like to turn it over to, uh, to our president, Richard Kai. But uh, I have to say, Congresswoman, what a pleasure to see you. And thank you for bringing your authentic voice to these issues. Thank you. Thank you. And let me turn it over to Richard. Congressman, we have a, a, a question from the audience. Um, what comes first, security or private investment? Can, in, can investment happen in the Northern Triangle region without better security? I don't think investment uh, can happen without addressing uh, the unchecked uh, culture of corruption at every single level of government. Um, as a former mayor, you know, I know the process of a business uh, trying to open its doors, the permit processes, the process of hiring people, the process of building up a successful business. Um, that is not the case in the region unless you are willing to pay um, fees to corrupt officials, um, to narco traffickers who make it impossible for you to have, um, for you to succeed in that environment. Um, I don't think that, you know, a brighter future for these people in the region, full of opportunities, the basic things, um, being able to go to school without being harassed, uh, being able to access healthcare, those are the things that are missing in this region and they are not possible because every investment is tainted by the corrupt elites. Thank you. We have another question. Corruption has been around in Latin America for generations. Why is it so hard to root out and what can be done differently moving forward so, the, so these issues can be addressed, effectively addressed and resolved going forward? Yeah, it's been going on for you know, many years. Um, you know, oh. Even here in the US, we have corruption, but it is checked because the voters, because the people here do not tolerate it. Um, it is unchecked in the region because these are powerful people that use everything at their, at their disposal. The police, the military, um, they're not afraid to use you know, weapons against their own people um, to, to silence them. As in the case with um, El Salvador, uh, we have a president um, who has an army of trolls who is not afraid um, to have those trolls harass, intimidate um, anyone and everyone who opposes or has a different mindset than the president of El Salvador. Those are the things that make it impossible for people to see a future for themselves in that country. Thank you. We've got another question regarding tourism. 
how can the U.S. support more tourism in the Northern Triangle? Costa Rica has boomed thanks to ecotourism, and there's no doubt that Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador have some magnificent national parks and areas to attract high-level tourists. What can the U.S. do to try to uh, bring and attract more attention to this region? There are great uh, missed opportunities uh, in the region, in all three countries, I would say. Um, you know, they have such, especially in Guatemala, where they have um, indigenous groups that are still practicing, you know, their old um, customs, their old ways, religion, and all of that. There's so much to offer there. Um, we can incentivize uh, tourists to uh, go there in the region and create those kinds of opportunities. Um, but again, a tourist is not going to go into a place where they don't feel safe. Um, and when they see these images of people uh, being murdered or disappeared, uh, the violence against women and girls, um, it is something that should concern every single American, whether they're here or there. Thank you. Uh, last week, uh, the Biden administration uh, presented their, their fiscal year budget to the Congress. Uh, that includes a commitment of $4 billion over the next four years with this next fiscal year, approximately $865 million to the region. You indicated that you believe that should go to civil society and not to government. Given the limited resources that we're talking about, where would we prioritize as a country uh, what areas do you think will make the most impact in the Northern Triangle region? I was delighted um, at the meeting with Vice President Kamala Harris uh, to hear her say, say it out loud. Um, this is the part that these three governments, you know, have rejected for many years. And that is, you know, the, the caste system that exists within these three countries, indigenous people, um, people of African descent, um, and the vice president called it out. We are going to focus in those regions, in the rural areas where there are no roads, where there is no electricity, where there is no access to education or healthcare, and help lift the lives of those people, even if it means working directly with those small farmers to help them individually. But how are, are, are you know, the, the leaders in the region responding? By blocking efforts for us to work with civil society groups, with NGOs, by passing legislation that would make it impossible for us to work directly with these groups that we know are um, actually delivering on the assistance to the people that need it the most. Um, so that is a clear indication that they have used the money that we have previously sent to them um, to enrich themselves. I was also delighted to hear uh, Vice President task USAID with um, uh, looking back at the U.S. investment in the region and requesting accountability. Where, where you know, an audit. Where did that money go? Who benefited from that money and didn't make a difference um, in that region? And I think that that is the difference. You know, those two issues combined is, is the bigger uh, change and the difference that we are seeing in U.S. policy in the region. Thank you, Congressman. We have one final question, then we're going to have to conclude. Um, this is from Patricia um, Aldana. 
She says, poverty, climate change, hunger, lack of education are the central issues. Investment in tourism cannot solve anything until the underlying issues of extreme inequality are addressed in the region. How can we focus on these real issues? We can focus on these uh, real issues by working directly with those people and bypassing the central governments, um, as, I, as I stated before. And I think technology has advanced, um, you know, uh, to the extent that we can send direct payments um, to people who we are working with. I have visited um, not just the area, but you know, in, in, in South America, very, very remote areas um, where USAID has uh, created programs, housing programs to help the people um, build their own, um, their own communities. Look, even if it means that, that we that there was a natural disaster, an earthquake, a hurricane, um, a volcano eruption in the entire you know, infrastructure of a, a small municipality has been destroyed, we wanna help them. Let's help them by ensuring that the contractors that are being hired prioritize hiring those local people, either by creating programs, training programs, so that they can train themselves and learn um, a trade, this is how you have skin in the game in the region, by empowering the people to build up their communities with some assistance from the U.S. We're not this, this business of sending money and allowing those governments to prioritize where that money goes and who it benefits is over. Thank you, Congresswoman. With that, I think we conclude. I really want to thank you for taking the time today to speak to our audience. It comes from the United States, from Central America, and also from Europe. Um, it's been a real honor to have you, and uh, thank you all. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Mary Walshock, and I'm Associate Vice Chancellor for Public Programs at the University of California, San Diego but I'm also a board member of the Institute of the Americas that is bringing you this conversation this afternoon. I'm pleased to be the moderator. We have two extraordinary members of San Diego's congressional de delegation, Scott Peters and Juan Vargas, both of whom have extensive experience and responsibilities addressing issues along the US Southern border with Mexico. Congressman Peters and Vargas also share their perspectives on the uh, issues of security, economic prosperity and migration for Central America's Northern Triangle region. And they're going to be talking with us about the impacts that these represent for border communities in California as well. They will highlight their respective roles in Congress on forthcoming, uh, forthcoming legislation and particularly related to Biden administration foreign aid to Central American efforts and to respond to expanded COVID-19 vaccine access to the region. A big agenda for an hour, but we're going to move quickly. And before I begin, I would like to thank our forum sponsor, the Burnham Foundation, as well as our programming partner, the University of California Television uh, Service. It's an organization that I was proud to lead for several years, and uh, they've been a wonderful partner in this entire series. 
So at this time, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Congressman Scott Peters, who represents La Jolla, where the Institute of the Americas is headquartered. And Scott, I have to say a few things about you. You represent the uh, congressional district, which includes the cities of Coronado, Poway, and most of Northern San Diego. You were elected in 2012, and you're currently, and I think this is important for our conversation, on the House Budget Committee, the House Energy and Commerce Committees, along with the committee subcommittee on energy and climate change. Scott is also a member of the House Joint Economic Committee. Scott, I'm going to skip your academic credentials and the fact that you're an attorney and a civic leader who's been very engaged in the quality of life of San Diego and particularly the innovation ecosystem, which has been very important to UCSD and the region's future. We know you understand business problems. You have a bipartisan approach to problem solving, and you are perfectly situated to help build consensus and cross multiple boundaries. And I think what we want to do is give you time to make some introductory remarks, and then we're going to talk to you about these border issues. Great. Thanks so much, Mary. It's so nice to see you, uh, even if virtually, I hope we get to, to see each other in person soon. And it's an honor to help uh, to help uh, close the, the Institute's forum on challenges and opportunities facing Central America's Northern Triangle. So thanks for having me. You know, the bottom of the Statue of Liberty says, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be free, free. And that's really part of the spirit of America. We welcome men, women, and children who seek safety and security and opportunity. And here in San Diego, uh, we well understand the importance of our immigrant communities. The rich culture of our region would not be what it is today without immigrants who left everything, literally everything behind, to start anew. Their role in our economy is extremely significant. Over 700,000 call San Diego County home, with immigrants making up almost 25% of the region's gross domestic product. Our proximity to the border is an opportunity, not a threat. Immigrants often come to learn at our world-class institutions like, like University of San Diego, San Diego State, and UCSD, one of the hosts here today. And then they remain once they realize <clears throat> what a great place San Diego is to do business and science and to raise a family. Immigrants played leading roles in some of our largest employers, from Qualcomm to solar turbines. And they also support some of our most important industries, <clears throat> the military, technology, and tourism. <clears throat> Excuse me. Those who chose San Diego, we welcome them. However, over the past several years, we've seen a growing number of migrants arriving at our borders, not because of the opportunities we offer, but because of the economic and hardship and criminal activity occurring in Central America, which forces them to flee for their lives and the lives of their families. Now, these problems are particularly glaring in Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, otherwise known as the Northern Triangle. Unemployment, corruption, illicit drug use, gang violence, all are persistent problems while these countries struggle to build the democratic institutions that are so critical for long-term prosperity. The United States, through USAID and the Department of State at the administration level, with appropriations from Congress, have to do more. In fiscal 2017, Congress appropriated $538 million to the Northern Triangle countries. But this aid was almost entirely blocked by the previous administration and that only exacerbated the problem. 
These decisions made it harder to work with our allies and our neighbors to address the persistent causes of migration, and they further our absence further empowered bad actors to fill the void. In 2018, I joined my colleagues on a bipartisan trip to Central and South America, focused on climate change, economic development, immigration, and national defense. On that trip, I met political leaders and military officers, visited military installations and historical sites to better understand the vital relationship between the United States and each nation. And during our visit to Honduras, we discussed various U.S.-funded projects that provide essential economic opportunities to the region. Our delegation met with Honduran President Juan Orlando Hernandez, where we highlighted the importance of creating business-friendly policies that will allow United States-based companies to make long-term, predictable investment in the country. We also discussed the importance of programs like the Temporary Protected Status, TPS, which protects certain migrants who fled to the U.S. and the significance of foreign aid as a stabilizing force if it's used properly and accounted for. And these are the kinds of relationships we have to build and continue to build and nurture so that we can build a better future. Yet again, in 2019, we saw the former administration, the Trump administration, cut the very aid we had discussed was needed. And this is not only a way to not solve the problem, but it's a way the problem gets worse. Thankfully, the new administration and our Congress, uh, which, which has a Democratic majority, have made it a priority to reverse those cuts and to do the work over time that's needed to address the root causes of this migration. In April, I was glad to hear Vice President Harris pledged $310 million in additional humanitarian aid for Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador in an effort to stem migration by mitigating the damages of climate change, like persistent drought, and funding health and disaster relief services to allow people to remain in their home country. People don't want to leave home if they can stay. Additionally, the administration announced efforts to strengthen the farming industry to help reduce food insecurity and to build literacy programs, which will increase the number of workers available for high-paying jobs. There's no individual action that will solve all these problems, no silver bullet. It will take more than money. We need persistence. We need strong oversight from the Department of State to ensure that the money we send is spent properly and enhance government accountability measures within the region. We We also know we need humane pathways for refugees whose lives are truly at stake to seek the safety that they need with a process that can be started within their home countries. I'm going to continue to work with my colleagues in Congress on comprehensive immigration reform and other measures to ensure that President Biden has the resources he needs to make a difference. So thank you for inviting me here today to discuss this important issue. Also, I'm I'm always delighted to talk about this with my colleague, Juan Vargas, who will pull out the book of Matthew, and I will pull out the book of economic growth, and together we will um, we will make the case that um, immigration reform is necessary and that we do the right thing on this migration. Mary, I'm happy to take some questions if people have any. Well, I I have a few for you. Uh, I thank you very much for that comprehensive overview and the sort of hopeful tone in terms of where we're heading vis-a-vis immigration and refugee policy. But things were really complicated by COVID-19. And you serve on the House Energy and Commerce Committee. Uh, it has jurisdiction over commerce, but also healthcare right. and healthcare aspects of homeland security. 
And I'm wondering if you would be willing to zero in on what are we doing uh, with regard to stepping up COVID-19 vaccine access to countries in Central America's Northern Triangle region? Um, I know more about the border itself. I, you know, I know that, um, and maybe Juan knows the answer to that question, but uh, I think there's, first of all, let's, let's give credit where credit is due to American science for coming up with these vaccines in a really short time. I mean, everyone marvels, A, at the efficacy of these vaccines, the best ever created, and how quickly they came. And now we're, you know, we're nearing the point where America has got pretty much access to vaccines and we're quickly turning our attention to the rest of the world because we know that this is a global challenge. Um, and I know that uh, I was just visiting the border processing facility at San Ysidro and they have a vaccine facility right there on site for people who are coming into the country. Uh, and they're doing the J&J vaccine, so it's one and done. And um, I was very impressed with the, with the quality and even the quantity of it which they're going to continue to expand. Um, and Mary, I, I, um, I can't tell you specifically about the Northern Triangle, but I know there's a lot of potential at the border to get that up and running again. Uh, maybe we can get back to you on that. Well, that was going to be essentially my, my next question, because we know that larger and larger numbers are arriving at our border, which you uh, indicated you visited oh. recently. And do you feel that the Biden administration's work to date has been adequate? Are there things we could be doing differently at the federal level or even at the state or regional level to address these health inequities at the border? Yes. I mean, first of all, I give a lot of credit to the uh, to the Biden administration. I give some credit to the Trump administration for taking some of the risk out of the, the process of developing the vaccine through Project Warp Speed, but to be totally honest, they had no logistical plan for how to distribute this. So the Biden administration came in, uh, they put a priority on this in the um, American Rescue Plan. We devoted a significant amount of resources to making sure that Americans have vaccines. So I'm very hesitant to be critical, but we're still in a crisis. Yeah. So I, I think it's it's clear to say that we we need to um, to deploy this these vaccines around the world. And I do see activity at the border. I got an update, again, right at the San Ysidro facility. Uh, they're taking in people. And I think um, increasingly we will want to open up the border to people beyond um, just the essential workers who are getting through right now, legal permanent residents. And uh, as you know, Mary, better than anyone, um, Tijuana is part of our economy. Yeah. We won't really full open, fully open until we get that border to be more porous and flowing again. And I, I do believe that the Biden administration uh, and Secretary Mayorkas um, are committed to that. I'm very encouraged by that. Good. So I'm going to pivot a little bit, Scott, because as you know, the Institute of the Americas is very involved in energy issues and climate issues. And uh, you're an expert in environmental law and public policy. And again, a member of the House Energy and Commerce Committee. Uh, particularly this subcommittee on energy and climate change. So I'm setting you up <laughs> to hopefully give us some insight into how climate change may be contributing to the mass migration of peoples to the North. And given that fact, do we as a country 
need to become more ag- active in climate climate mitigation, if you will, and, and and initiatives that help make it easier for people to make a life, make a living in their own country. Yes, I think that none, none other than the Department of Defense has identified climate change as one of the great risks to American security. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of that has to do with the literally about a billion people that will be flooded out of their, their homes by sea level rise. But we also know that the situation in Syria is likely a drought resulting from the effects of climate change over time. Uh, we know that uh, there are predictions for drought in California and in the, in the, the Midwest that could affect um, agricultural uh, uh, crop production. And that's certainly going to be true in um, Central America as well. I think Northern Triangle uh, uh, countries are not so affected by sea level rise, but could very well be affected by drought. And I think for our foreign policy in terms of climate, I would offer three ideas. One is we should work to make sure that the developing world has an alternative to what in many countries is really cheap coal. I think that's extremely important. And I think we should be, we should, we should be, an advocate for the development of the third world, but around clean energy, whether it's um, renewables or nuclear, um, I think uh, I think the United States should be pushing that as a as a climate imperative. Second, we should be working on deforestation. Um, Bolsonaro got kind of a free pass in Brazil from the Trump administration, uh, but we need to make it part of American foreign policy to save the world's lungs, which are these rainforests around the world. And there are incentives and ways we can do that uh, and still help Brazilian farmers succeed and, uh, and not hold back the development and the aspirations of those people. And then the third thing is I think we have to help with climate adaptation, which are the changes, you know, dealing with the changes that we're going to see around the world as a result of climate change that's already baked in from the carbon dioxide in, in, the, in the air. Uh, there's a lot for the foreign policy community to do on climate change, but those are the things I think are the priority. And, and certainly the third one would affect habitability in the Northern Triangle. And do you feel there's a, a willingness and appetite within Congress to address these issues, not only internally, but across the Americas at this time? You know, I <laughs> I feel that there is a, Willingness to address climate change. I don't think that all the committees have thought through all the issues as much as other committees. And um, this particularly, the, the in international energy policy, I have not seen yet um, the president's uh, plans and frankly, congressional plans. So I'm, I'm talking about it a lot. I, I'd like to be part of it. It's probably more of a foreign affairs uh, committee issue than an energy committee issue, but um, I think it's really critical. I think there's a few things right right before us uh, on methane collection, on pricing carbon that are that are really imperative. But for foreign policy, we got to make sure that that coal does not get burned internationally. Yeah, I'd like to take advantage of the last few minutes we have with you to keep the conversation rolling, and then we're going to pivot to a pre-recorded conversation with Juan Vargas. So, Scott, when you say um, there is still not sufficient this I'm feeding back to you what I heard you say uh, cognizance of the sort of interdependencies across the Americas of uh, with these climate issues. 
I'm at a university. I've been responsible for a university television service. Are there things we should be doing, educators, uh, think tanks, television producers, to increase public understanding and awareness of these issues? I'd have kicked myself if you didn't ask that question, because I want to say, first of all, how important the, the institutions, the educational institutions have been to my personal legislative portfolio. And I'll just give you one example. Uh, Dr. Ramanathan at Scripps uh, wrote an article I was reading on the plane about short-lived climate pollutants. And um, his work has led to the introduction of bills from my office, but also to um, help support the work we did on hydrofluorocarbons and limiting coolants, on the work I'm doing on methane, the work we'll be doing on black carbon from wildfires and from um, from shipping, uh, the, you know, the ideas and the, the, the heft uh, is not necessarily from Congress. It's from who helps feed us the information. And we are big believers that, um, that San Diego has a lot to offer. Uh, what I'd like to work with together with you on is getting the word out about that because, um, you know, frankly, I think there's been, you know, let me just say, for example, there's a lot of understanding about electrifying the transportation sector. That's one of the climate actions that we need to take. There's so many things we need to do about how we manufacture cement, about how we control oil and gas, um, about how we store carbon underground that people don't understand. And I think would, would get more political support if, if they were understood um, locally. So I'd love to work with you and and UCTV or whoever you have um, who'd like to talk about that uh, because the more engagement we have about not just the, the diagnosis, but the prescription about, about um, climate change, uh, I think that would be helpful because this, there's going to be a lot of dislocation. People are going to have to behave differently. And um, the notion that, that we can do nothing and things will be the same is absolutely wrong. But we also have, a, have to have a conversation about how we need to change and what we have to do differently. And I think uh, um, people trust science more than politicians. We'd love to have your help. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Ramanathan because he has a wonderful series we've worked on together called yeah. Bending the Curve. And, you right. know, that's the Keeling Curve. The warming where curve, we're right. going in this sort of uh, progressively towards... Uh, uh, disaster, if you will. And we can't, we can't return to where we were, but we can bend that curve. And what's very interesting about Rama is he has many, many ideas and technologies and very simple practices, right? That yeah. represent solutions. Right. And you use that word, Scott. So uh, I think it's solutions people are looking for. So maybe we should do a conference together not on what is the problem, but what are the solutions? Love it. I, I hear so many stories about, you know, what climate is doing to mental health or the wine industry. I get it. We need to do something about it. We don't have enough yeah. discussion about what would work. Where should the first dollar be spent? What needs to come first and what's less important? And if you want to um, convene that conversation, Mariah, I'd be delighted to be part of it. So we have a question from a viewer and, uh, it goes back to the issue of immigration, but thank you for the conversation on climate issues. And this has to do with the protected status 
of Guatemalans, Hondurans, and Salvadorians who want to come to the U.S. because of the past U.S. military interventions and contributions to climate change. And uh, his question is, don't we have a moral responsibility to uh, grant temporary protected status to such individuals? It's sort of a comment as well as a question. Yeah, it's one of those rhetorical questions. I mean, I believe we do. I think it's consistent with American values. It's also consistent with international law. And um, I think it's also wise foreign policy. You know, we we talked a little bit about uh, the importance of keeping those countries healthy. When we visit Honduras, I think that, and I used to check my numbers, but I'm pretty sure that 20% of, the, of the, the economy in Honduras is remittances that come from people living in the United States. Could be even uh, That's not federal taxpayer money, right? But uh, that's a really good thing for us in terms of foreign policy. So those people obviously are working, they're part of the economy. We have labor shortages. We shouldn't be kicking working people out of the country. Uh, and we know that immigration will fuel economic growth. Uh, but isn't it wild that part of the foreign policy might be that these uh, these family members are supporting their country from the United States? So in the minute I have left with you, another question, and it, it builds on what you just uh, said. Uh, the questioner says, the call for immigration reform has existed since the last significant immigration reform, which was during the Reagan administration. And the question is, what, if anything, would move the needle from your point of view? Well, I came into Congress in 2013, and that year the Senate passed with 68 or 69 votes, a very bipartisan bill that would have dealt with these labor shortages and everything from science and technology to home health care to farming. And and also devoted $25 billion to border security, not so much a wall, but not, not exclusive of any, any armament, but also technology for, um, for monitoring that's much more sophisticated than a 15th century wall. Yeah. And um, John Boehner didn't let us vote on it. And if he had, a lot of the stuff we're talking about today would not be weaponized as a political issue. So I think that's our goal is to get back to that point. Short of that, we've got the American Dream and Promise Act uh, passed by the, the House. Um, those people are here. They're the kind of people you want to be Americans. They can't get in trouble. They have to be in school. Uh, and gosh, if you meet them, their, their stories are so inspiring and heartbreaking because of their position. And we've got the, the Farm Workforce Modernization Act, which is, you know, all these red states uh, with farms need labor, and they understand the importance of immigration reform. So those are both before... Um, before the Senate. And those are the kinds of things we might have to break off in bipartisan pieces. But look, I think Democrats should say uh, loudly and proudly that we understand that the immigration system is broken. We need a comprehensive fix. Once we fix it, we'll enforce it. And if we made that bargain, I think we probably could, we probably could get there. Um, and I would just, my caveat is, is whether Mitch McConnell will continue to be obstructionist for the sake of being an obstructionist. Well, Scott, thank you for your time. Fascinating insights and some optimistic notes there. The Institute of the Americas appreciates your participation in this forum today, as well as your overall dedicated service to border issues. And so we're going to pivot from you and now introduce Congressman Juan Vargas to our forum's 
virtual stage, I think you knew, Scott, that uh, Juan had to pre-record his conversation uh, because his schedule did not permit him to go live. However, he did uh, in, engage in a conversation with the president and CEO of the Institute of the Americas, Richard Kai, and we're going to get to watch that right now. Mary, thanks again for that great introduction. I appreciate it very much. I wish we were in person again, and I'm looking forward to when we can do that once again. And I, I really appreciate you taking this on. Um, the reality is that the situation right now in Latin America, and in particular the Northern Triangle, is difficult. And we've been off track for a while. The last administration really didn't do a lot. And unfortunately, what it did do, I think, got us more off track. So it's very important for us to get back on track by trying to figure out what should we be doing, what should we not be doing. And that's why I think it's so important to dialogue up. You have the, the creativity, the thought power to, to really, I think, help us out, help the nation out, help Central America, help all of Latin America. And I appreciate it. I do sit on the, uh, as, as you know, I sit on financial services. I also sit on foreign affairs. And I sit on the committee that looks at the Western Hemisphere, which means Latin America. And Central America is very special, of course, because all the things that are going on, the impact that we have and they have on us. So anyway, uh, I look forward to, to this dialogue. And, and Richard, it's good to see you. I wish that I could be there in person. Um, and I'll look forward to when we can do this in person. Well, thanks, Juan. Well, um, I'll tee up for a, uh, for, a, for a question or two so that um, we can get this conversation going. You spoke about your participation as a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Subcommittee on Western Hemispheres, Civilian Security, Migration, International Policy. Um, in April, um, Ricardo Zuniga, who's the special envoy for the Northern Triangle and AID, briefed your subcommittee. Um, on the administration's action plan um, that involves a $4 billion commitment over four years. Uh, it's $865 million uh, for the coming fiscal year uh, to help address some of the root causes of migration. Um, what I'd love to know from you is, do you believe that the administration's commitment will be enough? Um, given your knowledge of Central America, um, what will be the highest and best use of those uh, resources so that we can move the needle in the region? Well, that's, that's a great question. Um, as you know, uh, President Obama tried to do a little bit more in Central America than what was done before. And when the, the Trump administration came in, it basically cut him off cold turkey. Now, the Biden administration has said, we're going to invest these $4 billion. Um, I, I think we have to to be very careful how we invest this money to make sure it's not invested in such a way that one doesn't help, but two, that doesn't uh, you know, find its way into the hands of corrupt politicians or corrupt individuals. That would be a disaster. Um, wh what do I think and how do I think it should be? Well, the local NGOs, I think, have done a good job in Central America. They've had a very difficult time. They don't have any money. And I think it's very important for us to work with them. Uh, one of the things that I know you guys are looking at, and I think it's so important, is, is to take a look at how climate change has really been a disaster for Central America. Central America is getting hotter and drier. You have some dry areas that now where you had this farming system that's been basically wiped out. We have to help those farmers. We have to make sure that there's a way that they can farm once again, where they have the ability to do that. And, and again, it, it's much more than just giving them money. 
I think we have to approach this in a very different way. So I, I do think we can be of great help. I do think we have to look at a lot of the fa- and the factors are, are numerous and we can go into those. But I, I hope that we don't just give them money that goes into the hands of these corrupt politicians, these corrupt systems. Let's work with the local NGOs. There's a lot of good people that are trying to do good work. Let's find out how we can help with this money. And do I think that the, the, the Biden administration is going to keep the commitment? Yeah. And, and the reason is very simple. If we don't, we're going to have a lot more people coming up because of food insecurity, violence, and all these other things. I'm good friends with David um, Beasley, who is the director of the World Food Program. We've been talking about Venezuela. We've been talking about Central America. And he says, basically, look, there's 280 million people in the world that are marching toward starvation. And we have to do something. Now, if we don't help them in their own countries, they're going to migrate. We see this in Europe. We see this in our own country. So we have to do something. And again, I'm thankful that under David Beasley and others, they're looking at it in a holistic way, not only to give food, but how do we make people you know, able to sustain themselves and their economy in a way that's meaningful and appropriate. So again, I'm hopeful. We're going to push hard to make sure that this administration does get that money. Is it going to be enough? No, it's not going to be enough. The The, the governments have to get their they're in those countries. They, they got to get their stuff together. They got problems and they really do have to put it back together to make sure that their country doesn't fall apart as we see. So, so much of it happening right now. You know, you um, thank you for, 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 for those thoughts. Um, as you know, and as you mentioned, the, the commitment by the Biden institution will not be enough to address the, the overarching economic needs of the region. covid uh, 19 has decimated the region. Um, what, how would you prioritize um, the current fiscal year um, dollars that will be going to the region? What specific areas where you, do you believe the administration should be targeting those dollars? And also what efforts can the administration make to get more vaccines to Central America? They've already made commitments to get vaccines to Canada and Mexico how about the Northern Triangle? Love to get your yeah, thoughts. No, great, great questions again. Um, well, I think the first priority has to be food insecurity. We have to make sure that people have enough food to eat so they don't starve to death. And I mean, we're seeing it, of course, in Central America. We also see it right now in Venezuela. We're trying to work with the Maduro government and the World Food Program to see if we can't do something there that's that's appropriate and not corrupt, obviously. But uh, people are starving. And so that, that's my first priority. I think the first priority of America is to make sure that people have food security. Um, how do we invest this money? Well, I got to tell you, you guys are looking at something that's very important, and it's also happened globally. And that is because of the supply chain and because of problems we're having with China and our competition of great powers, we would love to see regional competitive. We'd love to see Central America, Mexico, of course, Latin America, become bigger trading partners with the United States. We'd like to see them produce more things. Obviously, the the, the ability for them to do that, they have to have a a functioning government where the rule of law is there, and we've got to do a lot more about the corruption. But again, I, I want us to focus first on food insecurity, and then how do we help these countries become competitive in a way that we can work as a, as a hemisphere, as a region, to make sure that we can produce things again. I mean, Central America, Mex- Mexico, I, I think things are going to get better. And I think with uh, the new trade deal that we did, I, I, you know, I'm pretty confident that once we, we defeat this COVID, 
that things are going to go well with this uh, with this deal. Not so comfortable about what's happening in, in Central America. And again, part of the problem is the rule of law, the corruption. They've got to they've got to do something about this, and we have to help them. Sometimes you feel like you take one step forward, two step backwards. As you know, some of the presidents there uh, have a shadow over them at the moment themselves for potential corruption and drug uh, dealing and the rest. But um, we have to work with the people to figure out how, how can we get these, these economies up and running again and, and in a meaningful way so there isn't all this dislocations, poverty, violence. Um, and again, money helps. But at the same time, we need the Institute, we need others to figure out how do we do this? I mean, how do we get these these uh, these countries to be competitive on a world scale when we want them to be? We want to help. I mean, it's like the you know the, the deal we have with Canada and Mexico. We think that this will make all of us more competitive. The same thing should happen in Central America. Now, with respect to COVID nineteen and the vaccines, uh, we've been urging the administration to do this. I mean, I this is my own opinion, but you know, we have all these people in the United States now that don't want to take the vaccine. Well, don't don't just have it sitting around. Put it into the arms of people that want it. I've spoken to a couple of the ambassadors there in Central America. They're desperate. They're desperate for this, as is Colombia, too. I've spoken to the ambassador. Give us any vaccine you guys have. And I said, you know, we're going to push the administration, which we are. They've done something. They have to do a lot more. You, you spoke earlier about China. As you know, um, um, President Bukele of El Salvador is making overtures to China um, mm-hmm. and looking to get more engaged with with um, China from an investment standpoint, um, also with Russia. Um, from a geopolitical perspective, um, how do you think the U.S. should engage uh, with Central America, given the growing level of investment and engagement in China, the recent uh, COVID vaccine diplomacy? Um, obviously, the U.S., took its eye off the ball for Latin America since 9-11. Yeah. We're playing catch-up, um, a lot to do, um, and tremendous needs in Central America. So I'd love to get your thoughts from a geopolitical perspective of how the U.S. reengages um, in Latin America, but specifically here in the Northern Triangle, when uh, we have also uh, countries that have other options besides the United States. Having said that, we also have a free trade agreement with Central America, that's, um, the uh, CAFTAS-DR, which is an opportunity, but how do we take advantage of that? Yeah, it's rather moribund at the moment. We got to we got to do more. Well, uh, first of all, I mean, I, I think that Central America is figuring out uh, not the Salvadoran president yet, but I think a lot of a lot of countries in Latin America are figuring out that the investment from China comes with a lot of strings attached. Um, you saw that in Australia. You see it in other places. Um, it's a trap. Oftentimes they come in, they give easy financing, they say they're going to do this, and then they take it over. They bring their own people. They do a whole bunch of things. It's a trap. And um, they're interested in the energy aspects of Latin America, the minerals, and a bunch of other things. But it really is a trap, and we're trying to explain that to people. Take a look at what China's done in other places. You don't want that to happen. So we have to step up our game. Uh, We have to be more invested in these these, uh, regions and communities and nations. Um, it is true that we took our, you know, our eye off the ball there. We went to the Middle East. Uh, we, we spent enormous amounts of money there. We got in two wars that many of us opposed. And now we're trying to figure out, you know, how do we play catch up with China 
that has been involved in throughout the world now undermining us or taking advantage of other countries. I mean, even taking a look at their vaccine, they have a vaccine, but it's not very effective. It's not very effective. It's a trap. So we have to do better. Um, that's why I think it is very appropriate that we invest money there. Uh, that's why it's, I think it's appropriate for us, once again, to spend $4 billion, although it's going to take a lot more. It's appropriate for us to make sure that the vaccines that we can produce go to these countries. And I, again, think that we should allow others to produce these vaccines, not just the companies that have the, the, you know, the patents on this. Um, I, I do think that we need to, to move as quickly as possible uh, because it's a trap. It's a trap for these countries. You know, the, 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 the fake, false gold that they get from China. Uh, but that means we have to step up. Um, I know we get played. I mean, President of El Salvador is an interesting guy. He's playing both us and the Chinese. We get that. It's a dangerous game he's playing. I think he's kind of young and doesn't understand at the moment. Plays a little authoritarian, too. But um, it's a dangerous game that he's playing. And I don't think it's good for his people long term. So, again, we have to step up. We have to do more with trade. Um, and they have to do more. Again, the, the, the anti-corruption, the rule of law. I mean, you just can't make it up as you go along. You know, the, the law has to be stable. And they seem to want to change it all the time. And that's not good. Juan, um, I want to turn to the issue of migration. You're the son of immigrants. Your father came here as part of the Bracero program. You served as in the ministry when you were a Jesuit um, in El Salvador. Given your life experience, your close connection uh, to immigrant families, what are your thoughts about the best approach to, to, face, to address the challenges of migration along our southern border, and in particular, the migration that we're seeing from Central America? Um, also, I'd like to you know, get your thoughts on the lack of economic opportunity in the Northern Triangle, um, not to mention the security challenges. You mentioned climate change, which are obviously the drivers that are they're forcing families to make this hard decision to ultimately leave their communities and move north. So I'd love to get your thoughts, you know, from a, as, as a son of immigrants who, who knows that experience and many of your constituents have also ha- shared that same experience. So would, would welcome some of your perspectives. Well, thank you, Richard. I, I'm the very proud son of immigrants. Both my parents are from central Mexico, from Los Altos de Jalisco, and there was a program to allow people to come and work before the Bracero program that I think was somewhat successful. There was a lot of problems with it, too, frankly. But there was a lot of success in having this work program that we had. Um, we need something like that. I look at migration as a positive. So I don't look at it like everyone else is just as negative. There's a lot of positive about people moving to a different place where they can do better. Uh, the United States is built with immigrants. I mean, all of us are immigrants, except for very, very few people. It might have been our grandparents or our parents or great-great-grandparents. But the reality is that this nation was built by immigrants, and, and that's very important to remember. Um, so, again, I don't look at it just as negative. I mean, one of the things that's interesting, China's changing its policy on children now because they're realizing they don't have enough people. They're looking into the future, and they're saying, we need more people. We're blessed to have young people that want to come to our nation and lift, lift the nation up, do better for themselves. Let's make sure that they get a good education. We treat them well, and they're able to, to do also. When we retire here in a few years, Richard, you and I, we're getting the gray hairs here. You know, we have some people that are underneath us, you know, sustaining this economy. So I look at it uh, a little bit differently than most. I look at it as an opportunity and also some problems. I mean, the truth of the matter, most people don't want to migrate. They'd love to stay in their own country if they could. 
but because of the violence, the food insecurity, the climate change, um, LGBT uh, violence too, and all these other things, misogyny. Um, you know, thank God that women are understanding more and more throughout the world that they have rights that that unfortunately are not being respected and they want to move. I mean, one of the great things about Makila Dora is that I've seen here in Tijuana is you have a lot of women now that are earning more than the men. You know, I, I think that that's great. You know, my wife does too, but anyway, <laughs> I think it's terrific. And, and anyway, so the, the, there's real positive things that are happening, but also real negative things. And we have to, we have to say this, we have to have an orderly process for people to migrate a way that they can come in an orderly way when they're not taken advantage of, when you don't have these poor kids that are coming up here under great dangers and many of them perish. And in fact, if you excuse me, once I'm going to show you something. I, I have this cross here in my office and it says, no olvidados, paz y justicia. A young child made this for me because I was out at a funeral out in Holtville, a family had perished out in the desert. And we knew that one of the children, we don't know if it's a boy or a girl, because their, their bodies had been eaten by animals and from exposure. But we have, you know, literally now thousands of people that have died trying to cross the border, literally thousands of people. Now we have people drowning out in the ocean. You know, we, we've got to do better. You know, we, we have to pass comprehensive immigration reform that allows people that are here, that have, you know, played by the rules, allow them to stay. And then we need this future flow. It's positive for us. We, we've got to be able to, to make this argument um, to our Republican colleagues and to the country. And the Republicans haven't been able to break that, that ugly fever that they have yet of you know, anti-immigrant uh, uh, scorched earth policy when it comes to immigration. We have to change that. We have some voices. We have uh, you know, former President Bush and others that are trying to help. But immigration's a positive. We've got to change the law. We've got to give people opportunities. Related to immigration, um, you, uh, you serve on the Congressional Border Caucus and the U.S.-Mexico Friendship Caucus. So you've got a strong um, track record of working with Mexico. Uh, in the context of, of immigration, uh, migration, and the, and the issue of Central America, what more can Mexico do? Um, I know that the Trump administration had strong-armed the um, AMLO to, to ask for um, asylum seekers to stay and remain in Mexico. Uh, the Biden administration is now beginning to um, make changes to that policy. Um, nevertheless, all of the migration from Central America is coming through Mexico. So um, given your experience working with Mexico, what more do you think the governor of Mexico can do, both at the border um, and, um, and, and even in the southern border uh, in Chiapas? Look forward to your, your thoughts on that. Well, well, there's a whole lot of things to deal with the safety of migrants that they can do. I mean, right now, if you're an immigrant woman, if you're a woman from El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and if you're coming through Mexico, it, it's a very dangerous process. Um, sadly, I mean, a lot of the women get abused, raped, you know, the children get beat up, they get robbed, uh, they get charged exorbitant amounts of money, sometimes even from corrupt officials. So there's a lot that Mexico can do to relieve the pain of these immigrants. Um, Mexico can do a lot more to working with 
these countries uh, to begin with. Uh, they don't have great coordination. It seems like there's a lot of personality conflicts between, uh, you know, frankly, the presidents in these countries. Uh, so there's a lot that can be done. So when people do migrate, that there's a, you know, a more humane process. Now, all that being said, Mexico has its challenges too. I mean, let's let's be frank and, and and tell the truth. I mean, the reality is that they're dealing with huge numbers of narco traffickers and the movement of drugs through their country. There's just enormous amounts of violence. Um, they thought that hugs were going to work, and what doesn't work with a narco trafficker, you know, it doesn't it doesn't work that way. There, Mexico's trying to figure out what do we do then? Do we legalize, you know, some drugs? What 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 can we do to get rid of some of this violence? So Mexico is having a hard time with this, but it can do more. It can do a lot more. We can coordinate in a more humane way. What what I think Mexico shouldn't do is is crack down on these immigrants in a way that's harsh and and uh, and, and and shows little humanity. Uh, that's happened in, in some instances, and and I I think that they uh, you know the, there's some shame there in that. Um, it hadn't happened before. I think that they were forced into doing it by being browbeaten by the, the the former administration by Trump and his cronies, and that has to change. I mean, we have to deal with this in a in a more orderly way, and I think Mexico can do that. And again, we want to help. You know, earlier um, in your in your comments, you made reference to the impacts of climate change on Central America. As you know, Mexico, a third of Mexico is under severe drought. There's no doubt that. Um, this issue is not going away. If anything, it's going to get more serious as time goes on. Oh, yeah. So what what sort of long-term uh, strategic uh, approaches can the U.S. government uh, embark upon, building upon some of the initial um, commitments made by the Biden administration to, to turn the tide? Because un- undoubtedly, we're going to be addressing these issues um, for many years to come. You've been a member of Congress now for, for many years. Um, you've been dealing with this issue um, since you've been serving Congress. In fact, when you were in, city, in the city council, you were dealing with the migration issue, and, it, and it's not going away. Um, so I'd love to get your thoughts um, looking at it holistically, long term, and, and how we uh, as a nation uh, grapple with this challenge. Well, again, great question. I have to tell you, I, I've been yelling and screaming about climate change for a long time. I remember 2006, I almost got in a fisticuff down in Australia because I didn't believe in climate change. And they gave me the guff about, you know, uh, cows farting and all this ridiculous stuff. And I said, listen, climate change is coming and and it is going to be devastating for, for places like Australia, places like the United States, certainly California. And so we haven't done enough. And, you know, the last administration thought it was a joke. Thank God that, uh, this administration has taken it seriously. Climate change really is an existential threat to all of us, not just to, to, to Latin America or, or the Northern Triangle, to all of us. And we have to do all that we can to prevent this climate change. I mean, I, I remember the ozone layer. You know, when I was uh, in law school, we used to talk about the opening of these holes on the poles. And we found out that we could do something about it. And we did. And it worked out fairly well. There's still more to do. But the reality is we took it seriously and we haven't been taking this seriously. And we should. We see these hurricanes that went through Honduras. Two of them just basically wiped out so much there. I mean, you know, it's a drought and then they get so much water, they drown. I mean, the reality is that this is all changing. You know, I in the, in the insurance business, when I talked to them, they used to call these 
catastrophes are cats, and they had 25-year catastrophes, 100-year or 250-year. Well, those 250-year catastrophes happen every 25 years. And why is that? Because the climate is changing. Huge areas in Mexico that they used to farm, they can't farm now because they aren't getting any rain. They don't have the capacity. So we have to do all we can about climate change. Now, that being said, we are doing quite a bit. I mean, I represent Imperial County. You go down to Imperial County, you see all those solar farms that we have out there. As you're driving out there, you see all the wind turbines. We're taking all these things serious. I've worked my butt off trying to get those things in place, working with unions that sometimes did want to build, sometimes didn't, sometimes with uh, some of my environmental friends who didn't want them in there because they thought they looked ugly. I said, come on, guys, we got to take this thing seriously. There's a whole lot we have to do. Otherwise, you're going to see more and more migration. I mean, that the reality is because the people are not going to have food security and it's going to be all sorts of other problems. So I, I'm thankful that the administration's taking it very seriously. We've passed a bunch of laws in California when I was there. I voted for them all, all of them. And, uh, you know, we've been able to do quite a bit in California. But the rest of the world has to catch up and we have to be even more aggressive. Otherwise, you're going to see a disaster again. It's an existential threat. And, you know, we, we should treat it as such and not be shy about saying it, you know, and we're seeing the devastating effects already. I mean, go look at Honduras. See what happened when those two gigantic hurricanes came through. That's climate change. You brought up the issue of renewable energy. Yeah. Uh, Central America is rich in, in geothermal, and also they've got great potential in the area of solar. Um, potentially, this could be an area for, for, for future U.S. foreign investment. Um, is this an area that you're looking at as a way to help catalyze uh, economic activity in the region? That, that's one of the things. There's a whole bunch of them. So we have, I'm very familiar with geothermal because we have it out in Imperial County. And in fact, one of the interesting things is when you put that big straw into the ground, you know, you bring the heat up, but you bring up a whole bunch of other things. Here in the Imperial County, we bring up lithium. And so we're trying to figure out how do we harvest this lithium? Because right now we bring all these precious metals and things that we need, and we put it right back in the ground. We haven't learned how to harvest that. We're trying to figure that out so we can do that in other places in the world, including Central America. So Central America has this great opportunity. Again, uh, if they could figure out and if we could work with them on the issue of energy, they could produce a lot more things. We could have a situation where not all of our products were being produced in China or other places, they should be produced here. The supply chain, you know, would be better for us if we could make this happen in Central America. But again, rule of law, you know, anti-corruption, it's such a big deal. We try to pound that into the heads of the officials here. Guys, if you really want to be able to, you know, to in increase what you do here in a positive way and when it comes to manufacturing and all these other things that are beneficial, you have to go out after the corruption and you have to be a good model yourselves, you know, and, and that's that's a problem. It really is a problem. Well, Congressman Vargas, I want to thank you for your time today. Um, it's been a real pleasure and we look forward to um, your future participation in other Institute events. And um, thank you for your service. Well, I appreciate it. I look forward to being there in person soon. And I also appreciate the, the intellectual power that you guys bring to this. I think there's a lot of goodwill in this administration, I think, in this Congress to do things, we need help as to what which, what specifically should we be doing. And I hope you guys give us some answers because we need more. 
And again, I appreciate the work that you do tremendously. Thank you again for inviting me. Thank you. What wonderful perspectives. We have two congressional leaders who've been in Congress since 2012. They serve on key committees related to the border, to security, to health, and to immigration. And what I took home from this uh, conversation today is both our congresspersons have solutions and ideas in mind that could make a difference. So I think we've learned a lot and we also have some clues about next steps that can be taken. So I want to thank on behalf of the Institute of the Americas, both Scott Peters and Juan Vargas for giving us their perspectives, their unique window into the challenges and opportunities in managing this border and particularly managing it with a sensitivity to how Central America affects what happens on our border. I'd also like to thank all of you for spending this hour with us. We look forward to your participation in future Institute of the Americas programs and wish you well. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.